Hello, I'm Bianca. I'm Paloma. And I'm Tom. And you are listening to The Climate Press. podcast where we aim to bring together climate science with public understanding and action. Today on the show, we're joined by James Mackay, a graphic novelist and program coordinator for the Centres for Doctoral Training in Low Carbon Technologies and in Bioenergy at the University of Leeds, and Stephanie Robinson, a qualified youth worker and co-founder of Makeutopia, an educational climate outreach organisation. Great. We're super excited. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, we're excited because we feel like both of you really embody uh, what the show is all about and uh, bridging climate science with public understanding and action. So mm-hmm. perhaps you want to start us off talking a bit about the initiatives that you're engaged with um, at the moment and how you kind of bridge that gap between climate science and public knowledge and awareness. Okay. Um, I'll... I'll make a start then. Um, so, um, as as you've you said, I'm a manager of these centres for doctoral training. Um, so these are, are really big centres where we have 50 PhDs in each centre, um, and we're based in engineering at the University of Leeds. Um, and within the courses that the students do, they are they might be doing research into. Um, a new form of using hydrogen fuel cells or algal bio refineries or wind turbine design, um, those kinds of things. Um, but they're also understanding the the background climate science and how the solutions will will take place in the context of the economics and, and all of the, the social um, issues that come with it. Um, so they're really wide ranging courses mm-hmm. um, and um, through that, we've been doing a lot of outreach um, activities with um, schools and community groups and um, uh, general members of the public and um, MPs and policymakers as well. Um, so the work that we've done um, that I'm going to talk about in this session um, has all come out of the, the outreach that the PhD students have been doing, um, coordinated by myself. Um, and some of the academics within the centre um, and uh, the the work that we've done has actually been funded by the Royal Academy of Engineering mm-hmm. uh, so they have a, a scheme called the Ingenious Scheme um, which is really great for um, science outreach, science and engineering outreach um, so what, what they do is they call for really creative projects that bridge art and science um, so um, they might have um, uh, dancers working with scientists or they might have big um, installations or um, um, dramatic performances or um, visual art um, working with, with scientists to, to create really amazing outreach uh, projects. That's very cool. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the funding is, is quite substantial, so you can get up to £30,000. Um, so... 
we've been lucky to get two of those awards um, that have worked into these um, projects. Um, so we've been working to like a really kind of big, wide-ranging project um, to use the skills of our PhD students to um, to to do the outreach. Um, so what we've actually done is we've created graphic novels mm -hmm. um, that show what we think a positive future society might look like um, if we get to zero carbon future. Um, and where that has come from um, for me is because I'm an artist myself um, and I've done lots of comics um, and particularly my area of interest is in um, visualizing scientists ideas okay. so I've worked with paleontologists to you know when they find a dinosaur skeleton mm -hmm. I reconstruct what the dinosaur looks like um, I've worked with groups for example recently I worked with a group that are looking at glaciers in the Himalayas and how they're retreating and I produced a visual of what the glaciers look like inside the glacier mm -hmm. what's going on inside the glacier as well as the landscape around it um, and that was made into a poster that's gone all over the Himalayas to all these remote wow. remote villages in the in the Himalayas um, to tell them about what's happening in their glaciers that has recently been found out by the scientists uh, so that's the kind of stuff that really interests me um, and a lot of my work has been to do with reconstructing past environments, mm -hmm. so ancient dinosaurs and ecosystems and, and things. Um, I've worked a lot with the British Antarctic Survey to um, do visions of what Antarctica used to look like in the, in, uh, the Mesozoic, uh, the time of the dinosaurs, where there was jungles and forests of remarkable trees. Um, so I've I've done that kind of thing. So taking that, the past environments I've then worked on these projects looking at what the future could look like right. and kind of mapping that onto what we know we have now um, so the way that the projects have happened is that um, we've gone out to schools we've gone out to community groups we've done um, classroom sessions and and events where we've got people around tables all drawing together mm -hmm. um, to actually actually visualize what their ideas are uh, rather than talking about them. Um, mm -hmm. So this is all about visualising it. And when you do that, you find things come out that you would never um, encounter if you're just talking about a subject. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what's really fascinating for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so now we have stacks and stacks of all these children's drawings, nice. um, <laughs> people's sketches from, from events and things, um, and they went into these books. Um, so the books are based on the PhD students' ideas and all the visuals that have come out of the children and from the members of the public. Um, and I kind of acted like a, an editor pulling it all together, um, but also filling in my own ideas and, mm -hmm. and, and doing my own artwork as well. Mm -hmm. um, and we've been, we've been part of so many different initiatives as well, so we've worked with so many groups. Mm -hmm. um, so some of the work has featured in scientific papers, um, some of it has become like the cover of yeah. books by by different academics right. um some of it has has for example i've recently done a session for extinction rebellion okay. where i taught them all the stuff that we've done and all the 
Ah. the good practice that we've we've had in schools cool. um, to show them like what what they could mm. do for their their sessions great um, so in terms of visionings for the future yeah, and yeah, planning yeah okay yeah um, yeah what works what doesn't, what work, doesn't work yeah what gets people interested and that kind of thing Um, awesome. So, yeah, Makertopia basically we're a community interest company and we use maker culture, technology and creative art to address climate change and inequality. So we mainly work with young people and um, maker culture really is about using technology in like a really fun, empowering way, working really collaboratively, learning about something for the sake of it and and we, we try and bring that kind of fun exploratory learning into talking about climate change. Mm. Um, and our main project at the moment is called Model Futures. So we have a model house, a model street, a model city, a model map of the UK. Mm. And they're all, well, most of them are based around these kind of square boards with a grid of like 30 spaces on them that you can use to visualise anything. So we can visualise a, a school for example so you can put blocks down that are about how are people travelling to the school how are people getting food at the school mm. how well is the building insulated and you can assign quite simple scores to each block um, for a range of categories so the three main categories we've got at the moment are things like society, economy and environment mm -hmm. and by economy we don't mean like your common or garden GDP economy, we mean like, um, is it a sharing economy? Is it a circular economy? Is it an economy based around well-being ra rather than wealth and growth? Mm -hmm. um, and how can it be a more regenerative economy? So how can we have an economy that's working for the benefit of the environment? And the way it works is that if you're scoring really low in one category, it will actually hold back scores in the other ones because you're not going to have a functioning society if your economy isn't working for everyone mm -hmm. and you're not going to have a functioning environment if your society if your society is massively unequal. Mm -hmm. um, so it allows us to kind of support someone to make a new tile. So they might say, I'm going to make a youth centre and I'm going to give it a score of five for social maybe four for environment because it's a really sustainable building and there's loads of examples that we can learn from just by being in the building and um, a four for economy as well because there's a you know there's clothes swaps and repair cafes here and we're learning all this stuff and not being so focused on consumerism mm. so we could just give them a score out of five and immediately put them onto the model mm. And the way that we're going to kind of back up those scores is by attaching like academic articles to those scores. So mm. over the, the next nine months, we've got a, a really great partnership coming up with the university um, and Paul Chatterton, who is the, the same author of the book that um, James has illustrated. Right. Um, and basically working with a lot of academics to attach really robust data to these models. Okay. So what we're trying to do is create a, a resource where people who have limited knowledge of various social, economic and environmental issues can actually create very powerful scenarios of 
twenty thirty, mm-hmm. with kind of implicit policy recommendations that can be drawn out mm-hmm. and given to decision makers. So you know, some youth strikers can create this scenario of a place that they want to be take that to decision makers and they can't just easily dismiss them like oh you're 15 year olds you don't really know what you're talking about because Mm -hmm. they can be like well maybe not but the models do and this is backed up by like a hundred researchers from the Mm -hmm. university of leeds so actually you've got to pay attention yeah um i mean this is why like our, our project allows people to create their own tiles. So um, mm. the models that we have have space for like 30 tiles. Mm. So they can be buildings or ideas. So one of the ideas you can have is a four-day working week. Yeah. So you put that down and you go, right, what impact is that going to have? Cool. So if we turn up to like a drama group, we make a tile of their building. So instantly they're like, that's us. Mm-hmm. And it kind of anchors the whole conversation around them. And then they're sort of thinking, right, well, what do I want in proximity to to this thing? And what I'm hoping is this is going to do is we're going to go into communities that aren't your usual, like, university, middle-class crowd and some really interesting ideas and perspectives are going to come out. And one of the things that we say on our website is we're crowdsourcing visions of a positive future Mm. and really trying to, like, flesh out that, that vision and Mm. I think you know the art of communication is a field that is really expanding and I should say as well we've we've worked together um, myself and Stephanie on some of the events connected with the project that I've been leading Um, and um, Stephanie and her colleagues uh, really kindly provided the model city um, that she's been talking about um, for our event and it's just amazing it's a, it's a work of art. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I'm the kind of person that used to do sort of wargaming and and that kind of stuff. With, you know, I used to like build little castles and mm-hmm. almost like a you know, model train set kind of stuff. And you know, it's it's that kind of quality mm. um, of the actual physical model. But because when you when you move a bit of it um, and you change things, mm. you get this instant feedback on the screen mm. showing you how your emissions are going down and up and and the children that were working on it, they were just like moving the tiles around and they're all competing with each other and and getting that instant feedback. And it was it was just absolutely amazing. I was really jealous actually because <laughs> it's the kind of model that I've I've want I've been trying to create myself mm-hmm. for years. Mm. Um and I've actually you know, I've produced like two D ones where it's like a bit of cardboard and you <laughs> you place these tokens on the yeah. the, 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 the the board. Um and you know, I knew that that was kind of a bit naff, but you know, it's better than nothing. But since we've seen this, the model city, it's just like blown all that out of the water. It's, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Um, so yeah, they're, they're incredible because mm-hmm. it's, it, it's the tactile nature of it. And and so mm. when yeah, something that I forgot to mention is when you put them down, they will glow from red to green depending on how mm. good they are. So when we make the new models and they've got like three different categories, you can flick between. So go, show us how good you are for environment. Oh, we're looking pretty green. All right, show us how we're doing for economy. Ooh, got some red bits. So you know then that there's a bit of a policy dilemma there and you can go, can we replace this tile with something that benefits everything a bit more equally? Wow. But it is it is this tactile nature of the models that, we talk a lot about generating an emotional investment in mm-hmm. a positive future, and I think that's something that 
the models do really well and what James's graphic novels do really well. If you can see yourself in that future, then you feel connected to it and you feel an emotional investment in mm. making it real. Mm. And um, and yeah, without Andy, who's our model maker, mm. I don't think our project would have been anywhere near as successful because there's something about something very magical about these little models and when the room's a bit dark as well and it's all <laughs> glowing and um yeah it's been a really amazing project to work on basically because we get such good feedback like you know young people will say to us it's really nice to know that there are things you can do mm -hmm. and when I've got climate researchers telling me at youth strikes that young people are coming up to them asking them is it true we've only got 13 years left to live? Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of very terrified, misinformed people out there. Yeah. And just being able to be shown these quite empowering, reassuring images of what the near future could be like is potentially quite life-changing. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned, so you're, you mentioned a lot sustainability in, in this concept. I'm wondering if you could maybe bring it back a few steps and mm -hmm. kind of describe what, like, what do you mean by sustainability and why is it so important for what we're talking about? Or, Are we, yeah, or yeah. what's um, a low-carbon city? Yeah. yeah. Um, within the centre that I manage at the moment with bioenergy, um, that's a really big concern because bioenergy has a lot of controversies Mm -hmm. um, about whether it's carbon neutral and um, whether you know the time scales of of plants growing and mm -hmm. yeah. uh, managed forests and those kinds of things and you know how how carbon neutral it, it is. So we we wrote a whole um, comic um, mm -hmm. that goes out to schools um, for a, a group called the Supergen Bioenergy Hub, which is a, a national hub uh, for researchers, um, and most of the the comic book um, and most of the outreach was was trying to explain some of the complexities of of how we actually work out yeah. whether something's carbon neutral or low carbon or zero carbon or net zero carbon so mm -hmm. things are happening where you're taking yeah. carbon out of the atmosphere at the same time that you might be still putting some in right. so and how do I mean, you measure it's, it's, that yeah and how you measure it yeah. and over what time scales and and that kind of thing so um so for example um, when we go to a school and we ask them, what do you think about all these low-carbon technologies? Um, and we ask them to list them, mm -hmm. and the children might say, oh, nuclear technology, uh, nuclear power. Mm -hmm. um, and we explain the difference between the renewable technologies and the, what could be called low-carbon technologies. Mm -hmm. um, and we usually have a discussion, you know, is, is nuclear power really low-carbon? Um, because there are there are huge carbon emissions from the mining of um, the products that are used to to make the power. Mm -hmm. So the the actual moment of creating nuclear power is is carbon free, mm -hmm. um, but everything that goes around it and the, the mm -hmm. disposal of, of the waste yeah. um, has never been satisfactorily addressed, and um, and the costs are enormous. So um, so there's there's big differences between these these concepts, but. We, we talk about a low carbon future and and then over the last couple of years it's really become a zero carbon future mm. that we're talking about and that surprised me because if 
you know, in 2010, when we started some of these projects, if you were saying we're going for a zero carbon future, mm -hmm. the people that work in those areas, the researchers and the policy makers would have laughed at you mm -hmm. and said, oh, no, it's totally implausible that we'll mm -hmm. go for a zero carbon future. Great. Um, whereas now we have the IPCC's 1.5 degree report yeah. saying, you know, we have we to halve we have to yeah. halve our emissions by 2030 and then get to zero right. by 2050 and then yeah. we'll need negative emissions technologies yeah, and yeah. things like reforesting, replanting, mm -hmm. uh, regeneration of peatlands and mangroves mm -hmm. and those kinds of things to um, to get below the, the, the zero. So, mm. um, yeah, mm -hmm. those are all sort of concepts that are really rapidly developing and um, that we wanted to address within the sessions and the projects that we did. Mm -hmm. For us, it's a when we talk about sustainability, it's about you know people and planet not being a zero sum game. Mm -hmm. Like you don't you don't have to lose out so the environment can be okay. You're already losing out because the environment is not okay and because of these massive inequalities. And like what I feel like is if we achieve like social and economic equality and have economies that are more based around well-being and and you know things that work for ordinary people then the sustainability stuff will kind of iron itself out hmm. because the reason that we've got climate change is because we've allowed you know consumerism and capitalism to just kind of do whatever it wants and it's it's accelerating you know things are getting privatized and deregulated Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah, so um, for me, uh, um, the titles of our projects have been um, a low-carbon future or a dream of a low-carbon yeah. future. Um, and what, what we wanted to talk about um, came from the engineering side, so the technologies. Mm -hmm. um, so um, the whole purpose of our projects from the point of view of the reason our centre took part in them was to talk about the research that, our students were doing um, and what they what they thought could happen um, so you know we talk about um, renewable energy technologies um, and you know methods of food production and um, uh, transport um, sustainable transport and, and all those kinds of, mm -hmm. of options um, wait and can then, you tell me what the what is the likelihood of these alternatives to planes that you present in in <laughs> like, uh, yeah so uh, within the, within the book we have these kind of giant um solar solar powered airship yeah um things um yeah they they they're sort of a, a fun kind of trivial concept within the book they're not really kind of vital to the the overall story um but i wanted to kind of explore that because Aviation is is one really difficult area. Mm. Um, you know, the, I, I I have pity for a friend of mine who's a sustainability advisor at a, um, a aviation um, <laughs> service company, and and it's like how how do they kind of square that? Um, Just pack so, up now. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, we wanted to show um, some really cool sci-fi stuff along with the the you know the really um, integrated things um, where, like I said, where we talk about a particular area and then existing technologies. Um, a, a lot of it is um, has to be about the existing technologies mm. because 
the time it takes to roll out a new technology is massive yeah. and we don't have that time so anything that we do between now and 2050 is going to be pretty much with existing mm. technologies um, and it's only in the last three or four years that for example solar and wind technology the the price has really come down um, and they've now they're now um, economic compared to the fossil fuels mm -hmm. um, but they've been developing since the 70s um, so that's how long that's taken to to happen um, so for any new technology or any kind of sci-fi concept to come in it, we're talking a, a long time so we did have those in in the book but mm -hmm. we, we tried to sort of have those as like interesting uh, sort of talking points rather than the, the central aspect of the, the book which is about you know getting to renewable energy using existing mm -hmm. technologies. I was <laughs> reading something about like embodied carbon as well so like you were saying kind of what goes into creating or producing like exactly, tables yeah. chairs houses yeah. that like may themselves be carbon neutral yeah, now yeah. yeah so the but previously yeah so the, the something that is interesting that's happened that people talk about is that in the UK um, our carbon emissions have have declined yeah. per unit of production um, and that's thought of as being a, a good thing, um, and it is, except for the fact that it appears that the, like you say, the embodied carbon emissions are the things that we're offshoring by yeah, having everything produced in China or, or mm, whatever. Yeah. Um, there, there, there's a big group within the university that works on on that within the demand centre, mm. um, and you know they 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 try and work out whether actually emissions are rising at the same rate it's just that we're we're not counting yeah. them within our national boundary and that kind of thing and that, that's really interesting because we've looked at that website and we're trying to include some of that data in our models so there's this mm -hmm. idea of like imported emissions yeah. so when you're looking at like a street level or a city level there'll be kind of shops and stuff there so the more shops you have the more it's assuming you're like um or like you might have industry blocks so if you've got factories and stuff in the UK or in your city your city emissions might go up but in a way it would be higher if they were made in a different country and it's getting to getting people to understand just because it's not in your city doesn't mean you're not like responsible for it mm -hmm. and I think because we are such a service orientated economy we're such a consumer society we have definitely exported a lot of our manufacturing and that's having a negative impact on jobs and our econ and like our employment and it's also giving us a false sense of achievement <laughs> in terms of carbon stuff and I think the Committee on Climate Change they release like a progress report on how well we're decarbonising different sectors and like only really in the energy sector had we done quite well and that's because a lot of coal stations have closed down or something so we've sort of done some of the quick wins and things like transport that's going to be the next hardest one to do but again with embodied carbon 
actually keeping some combustion engine cars on the road for as long as possible is better than everyone getting electric vehicles because of the environmental impacts of mining things like lithium and, mm-hmm. and the, the, the rare earth metals for um, you know electrical batteries and stuff. So we've got to think very pragmatically and not just like mindlessly go for the thing that mm-hmm. looks greenest, like the, the more cars that we can keep on the road you know, to the end of their, like, useful lifestyle, you know, maybe looking at biofuels for those vehicles Mm -hmm. in the meantime, and then new vehicles could be electric. And the other thing that we try and show with our models is rather than everyone having their own electric private vehicle, why don't we just have electric public transport? Mm -hmm. And again, that's going to have a lower environmental impact and there's going to be less vehicles and... Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So it's partly as well, not just repeating the same mistakes in a new form like yeah, that we yeah. all need individualized, yeah. personal it, transport. It, as soon as you mention low carbon transport, people go, oh, electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some statistic of about half the carbon emissions over a car's life cycle are associated with making it. Production, yeah. So, you know, you, yeah, if you're driving an electric vehicle and the power is provided by wind turbines and solar panels somewhere... Mm-hmm then, yeah, your driving is, is not the problem, but mm-hmm. making it is is still a significant carbon emission. Yeah, yeah I always find it funny. Um, it's very stupid, but solar panels in the UK, I think it's super optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, actually, yeah, yeah. Um, the research that um, our PhD students have done within our centres, so um, looked at different areas of the UK um, for solar panels um, and they actually found that um, Dundee was one of the, the best areas. Mm. It just happens to be that the city is kind of on a south facing slope and sure. has they were looking at where you would put solar panels on existing infrastructure um, and it just had to it happened to have lots of really big roof areas south facing so it was a really good place to put them yeah. so they, they they made that into a scientific paper mm-hmm. from that project because um, they don't need direct sunlight do they no. yeah it's it's not it, it's not entirely obvious yeah that, no, you no. know you need kind of desert sun for yeah. 16 hours a day to, to make it productive and also it must be difficult to store all that energy mm. well i don't I have no idea about solar panels but maybe there yeah, are some so, limitations on the so so energy storage is a is a big issue technically. Right. Um, the the more wind turbines and solar panels that you bring on um, within the system, the more difficult it is to match the energy supply and demand. Um, and that's something that I think you, you look at in your, yeah. your your systems as well. Yeah, I think um, so. Me and James have already had a few chats about making kind of an interactive energy supply and demand game, mm-hmm. which involves pedal power electricity generators. Good. So in Makeutopia, we often use pedal power machines as like a feedback mechanism or like a way of gamifying okay. an issue. So what happens is if in a game something gets harder or worse, the bikes get harder to pedal. So people go, oh, that's bad, turn that off, stop doing whatever you were doing kind of thing. All right, it's easier again now. Okay, that's good. And so what we want to do is have like an example day and you're like in the national grid and you've suddenly got to manage all of these highly fluctuating renewable resources and bring on different types of energy storage online. 
and make sure that you've got enough energy storage or that you can sell and buy electricity from the continent because we have interconnectors and a lot of people don't know that we buy and sell electricity um, with other countries to help balance our grid and when we do that that costs us money so it's more economical for us to have decent energy storage and um, I remember going to the Centre for Alternative Technology a few years ago and them saying, if you want a career in something sustainable, energy storage is the way to go because we absolutely need like all the greatest minds on it. Mm-hmm. And it is one of the like, um, yeah, one of the frontiers where we do need some cool new technology and we mm-hmm. can start imagining. But th- there's a lot of progress being made. And so I've been doing a bit of research into flow batteries, which are essentially very large batteries but they keep the electrolytes in big tanks Mm. and then like feed it through when it's ready so depending on the capacity or the power that you want at any one time you can make either the tanks bigger or the batteries bigger so it works quite well for like industrial sites or like large scale um yeah you know like maybe you'd have like a whole housing development or something that would have a flow battery um so that is something that we're trying to showing our models when we're talking about managing our energy systems at a greater scale because it is getting more complex and and in terms of um the the energy system as as we go forward in in the the book that um we did um there's the changing climate as well so um electricity for keeping the lights on and things is is fine but the power for heating Mm. or cooling as it will be mm-hmm. um as as things get a lot warmer mm-hmm. um, and certainly when there's spikes in in heating um episodes there'll be huge demand for cooling right. um so it's it's where you get where you get the power for mm. that um and then when you factor in electric vehicles as well um that, that suddenly your electricity consumption goes way higher than anything we have at the moment yeah. and with much bigger variables and um, yeah. demand and having a grid yeah. can support that right? yeah yeah so what's happening already well i read lots of news of power cuts mm. because of the yeah super high demand but of the, the national grid they've got um some documents that they update each year called future energy scenarios mm-hmm. and that's what we used a lot for our um initial model and it's really useful and they do talk about this increased pressure from cooling and electric vehicles and also cooking because a lot of places are switching to electric hobs Mm. um, as we're moving away from gas so um, yeah one of the models that we're making for our model city or model street at the moment is a data center that stores servers so servers generate a lot of heat and that and they need cooling so what we've done is we've made a model of a swimming pool which is next to this data center and there's a heat pump between them so the heat pump extracts the heat out of the data center thus cooling the server racks (laughs) and then heats the swimming pool with it and you've got like some slides and stuff and it's like again something that's quite silly but it's proving a concept Mm. of Heat is very useful, actually, and if we're generating heat, rather Mm -hmm. than just throwing it into the atmosphere, can we use it to heat water? Can we use it to heat things that need heating? Mm -hmm. Um, Because you can have, like, interseasonal storage, so you can store heat 
until it's colder and you do need to heat your buildings. What? So I think... Um, can you do that now? Yeah, you can do that now. And I think apparently a lot of supermarkets do it. So you use like the asphalt like car parks to basically collect the heat and then you can store that and then use it in winter because the way that ground source heat pumps work mm-hmm. is on the principle that a certain level below ground, and it's not that far, is it? It's maybe no. like nine metres or six yeah. metres. Um, the ground is always about a stable temperature, which is about 14 degrees. I'm just totally pulling <laughs> numbers out of my head here. But anyway, so it's, and, and so in winter, that's warmer. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So you use a heat exchanger, so you... You have like these, you know, ca- cables that are underground and running, you know, a, li- a liquid through that's mostly water. That takes that heat, and then there's like, it gets kind of concentrated, so it, it brings it up from fourteen degrees to something like twenty, mm. and then you circulate that around your heating system, mm. and then after it's cooled down, you run it back underground, collect some more heat. Mm. So it's a, it to me, it's like magic technology, and I think. Yeah because heating and transport are our biggest emitters and the things that are the biggest to change, telling people this is what we need to p- be pursuing is really engaging. And also it's not like victim-blaming or guilt-tripping them. Do you know what I mean? Because people don't feel personally attacked if you tell them that their heating's not that sustainable because they know that that's not really totally in their control. It's not like you're saying to people, stop flying so much or stop buying so many clothes. So, mm-hmm. again, in terms of quick wins and where do we start with this massive cultural technological shift that we need to be pushing for. I think heating is is an easy one to talk about, less so than transport that can be quite an emotional thing. Um, I'm quite interested about your graphic novel, um, because you you show um, the ideal future in Yorkshire, and are we now on the way to to that future, to that low carbon future, or do you feel that we are doing enough things? Or, uh, for example, Leeds is yeah, a clear yeah. example of yeah. of a city that can become a low carbon future. Yeah. Uh, well, in in the graphic novel, it's it's set more than a hundred years yeah. in the future. Um, and I did that because I wanted to show how things have changed and developed. So mm-hmm. not everything goes well in yeah. the book. It can't, yeah. we, we tried to make it plausible so that, you know, there were some conflicts there and things have developed and right. changed. And, and even things just like the trees growing mm-hmm. from replanting and rewilding. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted to show you know, what that actually kind of ends up looking like. Mm-hmm. Um, so we set it quite a long way in the future. Um, but in the book, we say that everything happened in the 2020s and 2030s. That's when the change happened. So the good future that we have in the book mm-hmm. was made possible by those changes. Um, and I'm really encouraged by everything that's happened over the past year. It's completely mm. changed the landscape in terms of mm, yeah. what we've been doing. I've, I've been leading this project since probably 2010. Mm. Um, and we were just sort of felt like lonely voices in the wilderness. Um, and, and now it's yeah. kind of, we're, we're being drowned out by you know, the youth climate strikes <laughs> and you know everything happening with Extinction Rebellion. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's like, well, how, okay, how do, we, how do we fit in there and, and try and help 
all these things help underpin, like Stephanie says, when 15-year-olds get challenged. Yeah. They can say, well, we've got all this research that's come through right. Makeutopia's project work mm -hmm. um, that can then show policymakers that they're actually taking it seriously and they've got the, mm -hmm. the evidence there. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really amazing how it's changed. So I'm really encouraged by that. And I think what what's going to be exciting, like it might it might only happen in a year's time, but we want to connect like three or more different scales of model together. Okay. So you could have a class of thirty students, and they have ten round a street model, ten round a city model, ten round a UK model. Mm -hmm. What you're doing at that UK level in terms of what policies you choose affects the actions that are available to people at the lower levels and the mm -hmm. cost of doing those things. Right. So you're trying to make your street sustainable or have a decent transport system for your city. And if your national policy is like really supportive of that, like, oh, we can have a council-run bus service, right, well, let's do that. <laughs> and suddenly we've got good public transport. But if you haven't got that um, you know, policy support, mm -hmm. then suddenly everything's really difficult. So it does get them to think about what action can we take at different levels? Because if you're focusing on a really long national campaign, that can be very wearing. It's hard to tell if you've had any success. So I think focusing on stuff that's a bit closer to home is like more bolstering in the meantime. It might not have an impact on like national emissions, but it has to be part of that uh, patchwork of, of actions. And we kind of try and show people that you need three things happening. You need to challenge and change systems from within mm -hmm. so that might be with you know working within councils working within businesses um challenge things from the outside so that's things like the youth strikes extinction rebellion um and you have to demonstrate alternatives so you know getting a job in a sector where you're developing sustainable technology so that when the campaigners want to point to something to say you need to be doing this that that thing exists mm -hmm. yeah. I, I was really inspired this week I, I read a story in the newspaper where um, there was a, a senior civil servant, I think, who was arrested within the Extinction Rebellion um, mm -hmm. protest and fined. Um, he was in court and he was in tears in the courtroom explaining how he'd decided to do this. And he was like a senior sort of transport planner mm. um, within... The department mm -hmm. um so i found that really inspiring that mm -hmm. someone like that is, is is putting themselves on the line yeah, yeah. and giving a bit of diversity <clears throat> in terms of who you think these protests are yeah. and who are a part of them so yeah that's great I, I saw a really brilliant placard a while ago at an anti-fracking protest and it said, ordinary boring voter against fracking. It's <laughs> 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 yeah. you know, middle-aged white man. And I'm like, yes, that's who we need, do you know what I mean? Because yeah. we need to get beyond this image of it being a fringe group. It's like, all mm -hmm. we want is for the planet to be survivable. I don't think that should be a niche concern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> For me, I've just been reading a lot about like scare tactics and mm. how they might actually backfire and yeah. how we can't just assume that everyone's going to have the same response to the same messaging. Absolutely. And, um, and you know, it's sort of there's another article that's like emotions are not just levers to be pulled. You know, you can't just manipulate people. And what 
causes them to act in a certain way in the short term mm-hmm. isn't necessarily going to be like sustainable mm-hmm. or like good for their well-being. And it's quite nice to be reading that because I think the way that my project operates because it's so focused on like positive action mm-hmm. orientated things but we do a lot of message tailoring and I think it's something mm-hmm. that we've done unconsciously because my background's in like youth work and community development right. a lot of those principles are about starting where the young people are at and starting from the needs and concerns of mm-hmm. your of the people that you're working with so like if you apply that to climate change communication mm-hmm. you're you're starting a conversation with someone and going, what do you care about? Well, I care about the fact that there's nowhere for my kids to play. Mm-hmm. Well, I care about the fact that there's, you know, knife crime on the street. So what our model allows is for people to build a present that they resonate with and that they're familiar with. Right. And from there, you can place their concerns within the wider context of climate change, how it's going to impact them at a local level mm-hmm. and what they might notice at a more global level. Okay, And so... By tailoring that message, you're then getting a bit more of a like dialogue with people, and you can start talking about mm-hmm. um, stuff that you know Paul Chatterton talks about co-benefits mm-hmm. of climate policies. So yeah. you can go, oh right, so you're interested in that thing. Well, you know, a co-benefit of this climate policy yeah. is this, and I think when people start to see the positive impacts of of climate action on their lives then mm-hmm. they've got more like general support for climate policies even when it isn't directly affecting them mm-hmm. and I think um, there's a group in Oxford they've got a document called like climate visuals and it's like a best practice guide for what um, what visuals to use in climate change communication okay. and it's like saying people respond better to um, images of things that are, are local, and mm-hmm. um, that are new stories. Um, mm-hmm. Just one person uh, makes it easier to identify with than like a group of people. Mm-hmm. And you know what I think so great about like the comics that the well the graphic novels that you've done, James, is like it is making it relevant. Like people in Yorkshire are reading those comics, and it's Yorkshire, and that's yeah. the hedgerow. Like I'm always showing people a picture of that that hedgerow. I love that photo. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also that it feels like it could. It's a city somewhere today, almost. Yeah. Like there are cities that you're like, kind of look like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can bring in, you know, examples of the present, and people people respond yeah. well to um, positive stories, and particularly people. Are, on the right end of the political Mm. spectrum Mm -hmm. like what this climate visuals thing was talking about is like we need to stop um kind of using lots of photos of protesters because even people that are supportive of environmental stuff don't necessarily see themselves as a protester yeah and you need uh photos that work really well or imagery that works really well is like real people doing real work so they might be working on a like bioalgae farm or cleaning some solar panels people across the political spectrum resonate with those photos so it's about how to broaden climate messaging to bring in people of other like ideologies and 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 persuasions which is really hard to do when you're coming at it from a really like quite lefty socialist perspective Mm -hmm. you know which i think a lot of people in the environmental movement are
by nurturing people's imagination and nurturing that hope, that's when we're going to start to get broader public support and action on these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, within the projects where we get people to visualise their mm-hmm. future, a lot of the time we don't give them any restrictions. So we just say, you know, what, what future do you want? Okay. Um, you know, what looks good to you? And then we get that down and then start talking about, you know, well, how plausible is that and, you know, what, how could we make that happen? Yeah. But starting from not the point of, oh, you know, there's all these disasters happening and how are we going to adapt? But, you know, what kind of future would you actually like to mm. see if you're walking around in a city? Mm-hmm. Um, is something that really needs to happen. What if they tell you, I like it the way it is? We never get that. <laughs> yeah, well, depends, um, depends well, it's, to who it's you inter- actually, it's, no, it's interesting. Um, I I did a one of these sessions at a festival recently in a really beautiful village mm-hmm. um, in the Yorkshire Dales, and for me, it was really challenging because all of the other uh, project sessions that we've done have been in places where. You know, there's you know there's major problems, and we can see how all the things are going to go wrong, and you know we need to make them more green and everything. But in this beautiful idyllic village where loads of people are already engaged in green activities and um, are really sort of aware of biodiversity and doing lots of things, you know how how did we then visualise what things would be look like mm-hmm. would be like in a to a future, so it was really hard, mm. but it was actually really fun. Mm. Um, and yeah, we did, we did get some good good ideas. Out. Probably different ideas yeah. as a result. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there's a really interesting bit in your in your novel where it talks about the fact that we're still going to be sitting outside drinking wine in a couple of centuries yes. because we've been doing that for centuries. Yeah. And I I I think what works about it is that you talk about things that stay the same as mm-hmm. much as things that yeah. change. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I can't claim that. <laughs> that, that quote, that's from a guy called Nassim Taleb who yeah. wrote the book called The Black Swan. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, he's he's fantastic for some really amazing ideas. But, mm-hmm. yeah, he he, uh, yeah, he basically pointed out all the things that, like I say, that stay the same, you know, an old church or a road. Shoes, you a road, shoes, yeah, yeah everything yeah. like that. Um, and, you know, that we have to kind of think of plausible futures around that. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, going back to the fact that you you ask people what kind of future they want, and I think generally people don't ever get asked that. Mm. And I think there's a wider kind of, you know, crisis of democracy or something where people are feeling very disengaged and not listened to. And I think actually it can be quite therapeutic just to be asked your opinion or asked for your ideas, and that in itself can be quite transformative and mm-hmm. can start to empower people to go hey my opinion matters I'm an expert in my own life and so that knowledge is important to creating effective climate policies do you know what I mean because mm-hmm. that person sat in the office doesn't know what I need but I do yeah. Um so yeah I think we'll start to see more climate change communication projects start to copy this quite open-ended approach but it requires skilled facilitators to Absolutely. lead that yeah. and I think there's a lot of 
work that goes on behind the scenes and, and in our brains when we're having those conversations mm. that allow those conversations to to be quite productive and, and come up with these yeah. visions. Mm. Yeah. And I have to kind of draw attention to the fact that I've been amazingly lucky to work with all these PhD mm-hmm. researchers um, and, well, not just PhD researchers, but some other students and um, other people from community groups and from um, sort of maker groups and yeah. and everything where I've been working with people who I can just go to for all these ideas and sort of ask, you know, mm-hmm. what do you think about this? And they have the technical knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's amazing to have that mm-hmm. facility within the university and within the region. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got some of the you know the biggest names in in sort of climate science and mm-hmm. and the climate change debate within the region um, and within the university, which is fantastic. Mm. Yeah, and I think like from from my point of view as well, like yeah, we're going to be working with the university as well and being able to access that because getting the data for our models has really slowed us down. Like I've done climate science, but I'm one person and I'm managing yeah. the rest of the thing as well. So. I am really looking forward to that because that's just going to massively speed up the rollout. And the other thing is I'm a member of Leeds Hackspace, which is a maker space. So you pay like a certain amount a month and you become a member. So there's over 100 members there and it's like this community workshop and Mm. people are so helpful. And I think in terms of creating the kind of spaces that a more sustainable society needs... You know, we've already got several in Leeds, which are hacker spaces and maker spaces, because the way that people share knowledge for free, Mm. it's super social, it's breaking down barriers to, you know, certain hobbies and activities that you might traditionally have needed a certain amount of money to participate in, or it's, you know, the the kind of domain of, like, older white men, do you know what I mean? The, The diversity that we're starting to see coming into Leeds hack space is really powerful and um and I wouldn't have been able to do half the stuff with these models if I hadn't have had that support and it's kind of this like attitude of like things are open source and Mm -hmm. we can see that we're greater than the sum of our parts and that together we can achieve something better than we can in isolation you know people are hoarding knowledge or resources and I think you know in, in the in the graphic novel there's like bike workshops and stuff it's that kind of vibe at the hack space where you come in, you learn to fix things, and then you, you teach other people what you know. Right. And um, and so it's quite nice to, when we're talking to people about making Leeds a better place, we can already point them towards Leeds hack space, to repair cafes, to, you know, playful Leeds and, and play lab that do these, like, free, you know, amazing family activities. Mm-hmm. So there is there is stuff happening in Leeds, and I think it's just getting that message out there. Mm. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, I, thank I, you. I for would like us. to finish the recording with a sentence that I a phrase that I really like from um, your graphic novel, James, which was uh, "Make hope possible rather than despair convincing." <laughs> I think that's a really good uh, phrase to to think about every morning when we wake up and we have to mm, face yeah. Yeah. climate deniers, climate change <laughs> deniers. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Stay tuned for 
for upcoming episodes and visit our website theclimatepress.com. This podcast is available on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts and Radio Public. Thank you to all the artists who contributed music to this episode. For more information, please see the website. See you soon. And remember, make love, not CO2.